Okay, we'll be in Isaiah 62 today. Isaiah chapter 62. And in Isaiah 62, uh, we're going to have to review and do a little bit of history in order for this to make sense. But as we're getting, getting near to the end of Isaiah, hopefully it's all starting to come together. And at the study of Isaiah, my purpose has been that you will not only understand Isaiah, but that you will be encouraged and you will be more effective in your reading of all other parts in, of Scripture and indeed especially the prophets. Today's point is very simply this, as you'll see it in the text, the Lord delights in his people who in turn glorify him and proclaim his good news. So the Lord delights in his people and his people glorify him and proclaim his good news. And in Isaiah 62, when we uh, pay attention to the text there as we read it, you're going to see that it begins with the prophet speaking in the first five verses, then transition, transitions to the Lord speaking in the uh, verses 6 through 12. So that will be helpful as we read it. Uh, first, a brief history lesson. And this is what we'd like to see um, see us understand as a background to this, to summarize some of the things that we've already learned in Isaiah and things that we see elsewhere. Uh, what we want to see is, is simply this, that the exile of Israel from their land and their return to that land were predicted. And this is powerfully important to understand. I've put the cross-references in your notes because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the history. I want you to search that out to see if these things are true. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, among the curses that the Lord said, when you go into this land, if you're not faithful to me, if you don't follow me, if you follow idols instead, eventually I'll put you out of this land. And so that was the terms of their covenant. So as God takes them into exile, he is simply doing what he promised to do in response to their behavior. But when you get to Deuteronomy 30, you see that the return from exile was predicted. That God basically said to the Israelites, yeah, I'll take you out of the land. If you're that bad, I will finally take you out of the land. I've been promising you all these centuries. But nevertheless, I will bring you back and I will reestablish you. And so those things are right there in Deuteronomy before all these things took place. And this return from exile, as we begin to unfold the prophets, we see this happening in two basic stages. The first stage is this, that the people of Judah and Jerusalem would be physically returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and reestablished then as a nation. And this is a powerfully important point to understand that this was prophesied, that the duration of their exile was prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah, and that even the name of the leader of the Persians who would send them back was prophesied. This was all in fulfillment of what God had already said. And so this two-stage uh, return starts with this physical return, but then it is completed with a spiritual reconciliation and renewal. And looking back with the, the New Testament in, in view and with the work of Jesus Christ having been accomplished, we can see clearly that what the prophets were speaking of 
was the work that was done in Jesus Christ and the subsequent building of a people, not just of Jews, but also of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So the twofold is this. Let's get the the descendants of Israel back into the land physically. And then the second stage of that is let's then have a new covenant offered and send the gospel out to the world and begin to formulate a new people of God. And so the prophets often spoke of these two stages simultaneously. That's why sometimes we read the prophets and we ask, now, are they talking about Israel or are they talking about something later in the New Covenant or the church? And very often the answer is yes. Sometimes they're talking about both and it's all mixed up and that's why it's difficult sometimes to follow. We saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 61, there are some verses at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus rolls up, roll, unrolls a scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and he reads part of it and stops at what is essentially a Hebrew comma, denoting the difference between his first and his second coming. So that's how the prophets work. They can have in a single sentence ideas that span centuries. And so as we come back to it, we have to take our knowledge of the covenant with Israel, and we have to take our knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done in the New Testament and in the New Covenant, and we have to bring those things to bear on the text, and then we can begin to understand it. So that means that much of this language in the book of Isaiah that speaks of Jerusalem or speaks of its, its other name, Zion, in such a way as to not really fit anything that had happened before Jesus came, therefore is speaking of the church, the gathered people of God under the new covenant. And so it's for us to unfold this as we go to Isaiah 62. In Isaiah 62, we're going to see Isaiah use language that includes things like righteousness that includes things like the nations and that we see that he is speaking of and the lord is speaking of a time that is not yet fulfilled in his day but is being fulfilled now so when we're paying attention we see that what is said is not just about the people of isaiah's day or even the people of israel that followed them but it is said of the church all those redeemed by the blood of jesus christ through all the ages. As Paul would say it in the book of Romans, true Israel. And therefore, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have professed his name, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in him for your salvation, these verses become very relevant to you to explain to you what the Lord has done for you and to encourage you to do what he would have you do for him. And so let's read Isaiah 62, and as we go there, we're going to see that this is uh, very well laid out, a little mixed up, but very well laid out by the prophet, and we're going to have a great time understanding it. Here's what it says in Isaiah 62, and I'll remind you these first five verses are from Isaiah's perspective, and then starting verse 6 and following, the Lord is speaking. So here's what Isaiah says. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. It's a good start, isn't it? It's like, I've got to talk about this. 
and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now the Lord speaks. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words. And Lord, let them not be just a spectacle to us, but let them be internalized that we may understand how you feel about your people, that we may see the scope of what you have done for your people, and that we may be motivated to do all that your people are described doing here. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about the Lord first in this, and let's see, indeed, what uh, this has to say about him. What we're going to see is, first of all, the Lord delights in his people. And that's probably the, the most pithy statement in the passage is that the Lord delights in his people. He takes pleasure in his people. And people say, why did God start all this? Why did he do all this? And all this pain and suffering and difficulty and thousands of years of wrestling with and dealing with the people of Israel and all the people of the earth and, and dealing with this new covenant and going to the cross and all the suffering and anguish there and being rejected. And then these thousands of years of the church age where the church has to be at least as frustrating as Israel was. Why go through all that? And the short answer is this, he enjoys you. He did this for you. 
He enjoys his people. He delights in his people. They're going to be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. They're given a whole list of new names in here, which each one of them indicates a blessing of the Lord, the mercy and grace that he pours out on his people. He blesses his people. He molds them and makes them into what he desires. And what is the most blessed state they can know? In verse one here, we see, that the Lord blesses his people with righteousness. The Lord blesses his people with righteousness and with salvation. Do you realize the blessing of righteousness, that how much we have inside ourselves is because of a lack of righteousness? The sin that indwells us, but, but even more, the apart from Christ, before we were in Christ, when we were still separated by him and had not been redeemed in Christ, we were separated from God. And that made our lives empty, purposeless, self-serving. But righteousness comes, enabling us to be in that, that space that God is in and enabling us indeed to have his spirit indwell us. Righteousness and salvation being given the exit ramp off the, as the old band once said, the highway to hell. Being provided with that diversion off of the normal destination of humanity, separated from God, dead in their sin, to that high road, that narrow way that is salvation, that is life, that is truth, and that is walks in the light. If we look at verse two here, he also gives his people mission that they have things to do. They are to be, they, they are beautiful. They are given royal status. And this speaks of a, a status of believers that takes us back to the created order of things. We'll talk more about that in a moment as we get to the people of God. But look in verse four here, what he says about them here. And here's where he does some renaming. You're no more called forsaken. And if you look up these various names that are used in this passage here, you'll find many of them earlier in the book of Isaiah, where he tells them you're forsaken. And now he's going to say, you're not forsaken. No more are you going to be called desolate. No more are you going to be called forsaken. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. My delight is in her. You're going to be called married because he delights in his people. Married, that's something important. As the New Testament comes along, we find out Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom, the church referred to as his bride. In other words, he's going to do all for him that a good husband, a right husband, a true husband, a true man should be doing for his wife. But he will do it without mixture of error or procrastination, men. But he will be doing it perfectly. And he will be ministering to his people and in verse 5, he rejoices over his people. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice 
over you. And look in this in verse 12. They shall be called the holy people. The holy people. Too much we think about the word holy as describing our moral state, as us being without sin. But more importantly, what this word holy entails and the, you know, the morality is a part of it. But holy means set apart unto God. So his holy people are those that are set apart, that are dedicated to his purposes, to what he would have them to be. They are the holy people and they are the redeemed of the Lord. And look at this renaming here in this verse. You shall be called thought out, a city not forsaken. Sought out, a city not forsaken. This is how the Lord feels about his people. And I want to point out that the Lord has sworn these things to be and to happen and to be accomplished with an oath. If we look in verses 8 and 9 here, this is very interesting what it says here. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And so he declares an oath and he declares this oath. Whenever you declare an oath, you're supposed to declare it by something high, by something that cannot be broken, by something that gives a guarantee. And this oath, he is swearing basically by uh, himself, but he says, by, my, by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And if you were paying attention earlier in Isaiah, we found out, okay, the hand, in, particularly in Isaiah, very often speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, the things that he has done. And broadly, what the hand and the arm in the Bible represent when it refers to God is not that he has a physical hand or arm, but it is what he accomplishes upon the earth. It's as if God doesn't need a hand or arm until he's going to reach down here, he's going to get something done. And he does that generally in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he swears then, in essence, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work that he has done, by the absolute certainty of his power and might that he has in Jesus Christ, by the absolute authority of Jesus Christ in which all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, but also by the great ability of Jesus Christ, the one who came and was tempted in every way as we are and yet did not sin. That's what he's swearing by. And then when we read the Gospels and we open up the Gospels and we see this mighty man of God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, walk the earth and he says the perfect things and he ministers healing and kindness and resurrection to people. And we see him endure the suffering and the rejection of his people and go as it were as a lamb to the slaughter, march toward the cross to pay the price for our sins. God is swearing by that. I'd say there's nothing greater in the universe to swear by. For all things whatsoever are in the universe have been subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he swears an oath by this absolute and wonderful and perfect power. And so he is pledging to do all that we find in Isaiah 62. And by implication, all that he says throughout the book, he's pledging to do it with absolute resolve and absolute 
certainty. Now, what does it mean here? There's some language here that might not be familiar to us that we see in verses 8 and 9 here. And this is important for us to understand. In verse 8 here, we see, he says, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. So this is what he's promised. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. And you're thinking, okay, I've not been particularly worried about that. We've, as a nation, uh, only been attacked a couple times, and it's never resulted in any kind of mainland incursion or, or invasion like that. We're in what we think is a fairly secure place on the planet. So what is all this talk of this, uh, this I'm not going to give your food to your enemies? Well, in order to understand this, we have to think like Isaiah, think like the Israelites who received the word of God, because it had to be relevant to them when they received it. And if you go back there into the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is your guidebook for understanding the entire Old Testament, what you'll find as part of the curses was that they would grow up crops and someone else would get the benefit. In other words, if you don't obey me, you don't follow my ways, then you're going to raise crops, but an invader is going to come in here and steal them. And you're going to have fruit on the vine, but someone else is going to make wine out of it because... You will have been unfaithful, and I will send an enemy upon you. So when he says, I'll not again do this, he's saying, there'll be no more curse. And when the Israelites went into the land in the book of Deuteronomy, God makes a deal with them as part of their covenant. He says, when you're in this land, if you're good, there'll be blessings. If you're not good, there'll be curses. And it's essentially saying that in the new covenant, there's no curses. Do you realize that? The only curse of the new covenant is not entering into it. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved by his blood will not have the blood taken off of them. They will not have those things rolled back. That the Lord will accomplish what he has sent that forward to do. And so there are no longer these curses upon people. He is saying, I'll not again do that. But verse 9, those who garner it shall eat it, praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. In other words, you're going to have the blessings of supply from the Lord. You're not going to have to worry about these curses. And you're going to be able to enjoy the blessings of God in his presence. Do you see where it says, in the courts of my sanctuary? Because as he established his covenant and as he gave the sacrificial system and, and designed a tabernacle and had the Israelites build the tabernacle, he was building for them a place for his presence to be among them. And so when you went to the tabernacle, you were going into the presence of the Lord. Indeed, if you were anywhere in the camp of Israel, you were somewhat in the presence of the Lord. But as you drew closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, you were further and further into the presence of the Lord. And he made the way to do that. And he made a sacrificial system to maintain that and to maintain the consciences of the people to be able to come before him in that way. But in the new covenant, he is with his people wherever they are. 
So Lord Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I'm right there. And he said he would send another comforter, one like him, but not him. That's the Holy Spirit of God. He would send to be in his people. And so he has made his people, according to the New Testament, a temple, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. God has sworn to bring his people near. There's no longer this curse, but there's fellowship of breaking the bread and enjoying the cup with the Lord in his presence. God has sworn to bring his people near, to make them righteous, to bless them with his presence and life and purpose, the mission that they have, and he has shown himself faithful and mighty to do it. This is why we study the word of God. Because it brings before our eyes all that he has done. It shows his powerful might to accomplish it. It shows his will to accomplish it. It reveals to us his attitude toward his people to see all that he has done for his people and to see that there's no obstacle too great for him, no heart too hard for him, no conspiracy of earthly authorities too grand for him, no spiritual powers that can oppose him or stop him so that when he swears with an oath, we know it to be fact. Let's move on and see perhaps the most beautiful aspect of what he is doing, and that's that his people are a part of it. I don't know if you've realized this, but God has included his people in every step of his plan. There's not been any part of his plan accomplished upon the earth except the cross that did not involve his people. And what we're going to see in these verses here is we're going to see that his people are a beacon for the world, that they're made to rule with him, that they're to prepare the way, that they pray for the fulfillment of all of these things. Let's go back to our text now and see how this unfolds. It unfolds like this in verses 1 and 2. God's people are to be a beacon for the world, he says. And this is Isaiah's words. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And I want you to internalize that. And I want you then to interpret it based upon what we've learned. When he is speaking of Zion, he's speaking of the redeemed and the faithful people of all ages of the Lord. And he's saying, I won't keep silent. Can we say that? Can you say it with me? I will not keep silent. See, your, our brother Isaiah was inspired to say those words. And Lord said, those are keepers. Holy Spirit inspired them. We're going to keep them. And someone about 3,000 years from now is going to be sitting in a sanctuary out there in the coastlands of the sea, out there in the middle of nowhere, and they're going to see those words, and they're going to say with Isaiah, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and God is so good to have from Isaiah all the way back really to Adam and all the way to the present day to be including in his plan for his people 
the people themselves. And here we are as part of his plan. We are this beacon for the world. And just like Isaiah is here, he says, For Jerusalem's sake, it will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This reminds me of a couple things that Jesus said, particularly, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What's the most famous city on a hill? Jerusalem. And it can't be hidden. And so he is accomplishing this right now through his people. Isaiah cannot be quiet, nor should we keep quiet about these things. For indeed, we are a beacon to the world. And God's people rule with him. Look how it says this in verse 3 here. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. These are emblems of rulership, of royalty, the crown and the diadem, and they are in the hand of God. In other words, they're, they're handled, they're carried by Christ for his people. God's people rule with him. And this is something that we too often lose sight of. We think, okay, This whole salvation plan is just something God set up and and hopefully we jump into it. And when we do, we go to heaven and we're just content and happy and not in hell. But it's so much more than that. Look what it says in the book of Revelation. When you want to know what's really going to happen, you cheat and you go to the end of the story, right? Revelation 3.21 says this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And when you read those seven letters, he has a promise after, at the end of each letter to the one who conquers. And he is speaking of the faithful, the ones who stay faithful to the end. And he said, you're going to rule with me on, on this throne. And in the, near the end of the book of Revelation here, as things are wrapping up, He sees thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. You say, well, that's interesting. I wonder who that is. Is that some angels or something that are able to judge that God has made thrones for in heaven? No. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will what? Reign with him. They will reign with him. He says this clearly in Corinthians, and I'm going over this much because this is important because I'm going to make the point and I'm going to bring it back to creation itself. First Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? He's criticizing the church because they were taking each other to court. He says this is inappropriate. Y'all aren't, aren't plaintiffs and you aren't defendants. You're judges. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Some conjecture that that was part of this whole rebellion. What upset Satan and some of the angels was the idea that the humans were put in charge of the earth. And yet we will rule over them. Look at 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, 
we will also reign with him. And look then in Genesis 1, 27, 28. God created man his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. To be in his image and his likeness is this aspect of dominion. It is to be ruling over the earth. As he presides over the universe and he presides over us, so we rule with him and we are to preside over the earth. But we lost that when we sinned and we were thrown out of the garden and we forfeited that position. But in Christ, it is restored. In Christ, it is restored. And so often believers today tremble at the at the people of the earth and at the nations of the earth as they continue their plots to overthrow Jesus Christ, like it says in Psalm 2. We tremble and they say, no, 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 you're not going to have church. And no, 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 you're not going to proselytize here. And no, 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 you can't get out there and protest the abortion clinic. And we cower and we wring our hands, forgetting that Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He has restored this already and he will restore it finally. It is a restoration of Eden. So God's people not only will rule with him, they'll prepare the way. Look at what it says in verse 10. And this is great imagery here. It says, go through, go through the gates. In other words, Jerusalem, Zion, y'all go out and you prepare the roads. He says, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. That should remind you of the, the ministry of John the Baptist, who it was said, he prepares the way, makes a way in the wilderness. And that's our mission as well. Prepare the way, make the way, make the road straight. Build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal. In other words, proclaim his great truth and show forth his righteousness. See, this was a fulfillment. Do you remember when we studied the servant songs that at one point that the servant is called Israel? We know the servant was speaking of Christ and Christ is called Israel. And that's very interesting because what we saw in that passage was he was called that because he is fulfilling what Israel was supposed to fulfill and ultimately really kind of did by bringing forth the Christ and him doing his work. But look all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when this whole Israel thing really started. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, from the very beginning, 
from his first communications with Abram to call him out of the land of the Chaldeans, ironically, or that area north of the Chaldeans there. He calls him out of that land and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to bless all the nations. And this is precisely what we see described in Isaiah over and over and over again. It's this blessing to all the nations, a blessing of knowing God and who he is. So they are a beacon. They are to go out and prepare the way, these people of God. But look what else they do in uh, verses six and seven, when the Lord takes over here, you know. So, so Isaiah lifts up these praises to the Lord in, in the first five verses saying, I will not keep silent. I've got to make known what's going on here. And the Lord comes in and he says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. God's people pray unceasingly for the fulfillment of all of these things. Do you see the language here is the idea that these are like watchmen. They're going to set on the wall. In other words, they're going to be up here where they can see what's going on. They can speak to the people outside the wall. They can speak to the people inside the wall. And what they're to do is they're to be speaking to the Lord all day and all night. Be speaking to the Lord. Give him no rest until all this is done. He wants his people to be praying for all this to be accomplished. You know, too often we look in this like spectators, like we're, we're sitting on the bleachers and we're reading the word of God and it's saying all that God has done and all that he's doing and it's like we're watching a parade go by like, wow, isn't that cool? Pretty soon we'll see this happen and we'll see that happen and, and he'll have all these things accomplished. But this is the person who sits in and is part of the parade knowing what comes behind them and encouraging it all the more. This is give him no rest. And we're reminded of the passages where Jesus instructs us to pray. And he instructs us, don't do vain repetition like the Gentiles. In other words, don't just say words over and over like they're magic words, but be persistent in prayer. Keep after him for things. And he's saying right here, He's put watchmen, he's designated his people to continue to give him no rest, to pray over and over. For what? Would it surprise you if I said, it's like we're praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? God, send your people to, to spread your word. God, help your people be faithful and righteous as a beacon in the earth. God, continue to, to scour the earth for all those that will believe. Continue to bring them in and bring in the harvest until such time as it's fitting for Jesus to return. Lord, make it so. Those are the prayers that the righteous in Christ lift up. God has appointed watchmen basically to pray for these things to come to pass. And this is where we see so clearly God includes his people. That they are the beacon. That they are the light to the world. That they are the ones who are involved 
every step of the way. We're not waiting to be appointed some rulership with him. We are grabbing hold of it now as he has provided it. And all along the way, we are as if we are shouting to the leader of the parade, the Lord Jesus Christ, march on, march on, continue, continue to bring all things to pass that you have done. Well, I hope so far this has been encouraging. I've been encouraged by studying it, reading it, seeing what the Lord has for us here. But here's how I want to encourage you today. Consider yourselves to be on the final pilgrimage to Jerusalem. God included in his laws for the Israelites certain feasts in which they were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And that became known as what's called a pilgrimage. And so they would pack up their families and they would go. And we have examples of this in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. People, the faithful, going to Jerusalem to celebrate with the Lord and to make sacrifice with the rest of their their kinfolk and their families and their nation to go there and worship the Lord. It was a great pilgrimage. There are psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent and they're particular psalms that they would recite as they approached Jerusalem and hiked up the hill because no matter which direction you came, to Jerusalem, at some point you were going up a hill. You were going up to Jerusalem and you were going up there to worship God as if it were a high place closer to him. And according to uh, Barry Webb, whose commentary on Isaiah has been very helpful to me, we're on that final pilgrimage. We're on our way there. And all along the way, we are beacons. All along the way, we are those who are smoothing the way for those who would come behind us. And and we're all along the way encouraging others to go with us. This is a picture that we saw earlier in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, we see this come to pass. And it says like this, um, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, it'd be like a beacon. You could see it from everywhere. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Do you remember in the passage we just read? It said, you're going to be called sought after. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Are we those who along the way, they're saying, hey, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Is this not spreading the gospel? Is this not what we're encouraged to do? That we're on this final pilgrimage, but as we pass along the road, we're seeing the spectators stand around and they're like, oh, look, it's a, it's a pilgrimage. People are going somewhere. And we say, yes, come along. But I've got this and that to do. No, don't worry about that. That won't matter where we're going. Those things won't matter. Come along. We pass them on the road and will they go? I don't know. Have we asked? 
What awaits those who do not make this final pilgrimage to Jerusalem? What awaits those who, who watch us go by and, and don't respond to this encouragement to let's go up to the house of the Lord? We're going to find out next time what exactly happens. For now, we can see the example that Isaiah has set in not being able to keep silent about these things, that we are to share the gospel, that we're to announce to everyone where we're going, that we're to raise up a banner as it were, take the basket off the light, let it shine, remove the stones out of the road, the obstacles, the objections that people have to the gospel. Let's, let's deal with those things. Let's get them out of the way, the things upon which people stumble, and let's carry them along the way. Let's invite them along to go up to Jerusalem, the final pilgrimage. And then our encouragement is this, pray for the kingdom to come. Pray for the kingdom to come. We're called to be light, a beacon, a witness, to prepare the way, to proclaim the gospel, but it all begins here with prayer. As he tells the watchman, don't give him any rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. Don't give the Lord any rest. You know what? Better yet, you know, raise your hand if you've ever had to wake someone else up, like on a regular basis, like, yeah, <laughs> most of us, any of us that have had children, you know, it's like you, know, you go through that period where you're the one that has to wake them up and then you pray for the day that they'll be able to wake up. And then when they have to get up before you and go to work, you're, you're awake anyway, but you're not, you're staying in your room because you're like, okay, I'm going to give them the chance to do it on their own, you know, and hopefully they'll wake up and get on their own. And then you hear their door open and you hear them moving about the house and you're like, ah, oh, praise the Lord. They did it. When we wake up in the morning, won't you roll over and make sure that the Lord is not resting? This is what this is saying. Don't give him any rest. Keep on his case until this is all done. Nag him. He can take it. And say, Lord, are you, are you saving people today? Is the kingdom coming today? Are you improving your people and making them a beacon and a light for the world? Lord, are you equipping your people? And bother him every morning. As you wake up, say, I'm going to make sure the Lord's awake. I'm, I'm not just going to take it by word here that, that he's going to do all this without me because it's very clear he doesn't do anything on the earth without people. So I'm going to be the one to make sure he's awake. And hopefully I make a habit of it. So pray for the kingdom to come. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you. For Lord, you are good. You are accomplishing these things, both in us and through us. And Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness to do so. We understand the weight of the oath that you have sworn, that it is a sure thing, that it is a definite thing. But nevertheless, we don't want to give you rest. Would you have your people to continually pray for you? 
what we have learned from the scriptures is this, that you take a delight in your people and your people then in turn proclaim your excellencies to the world. Will you keep them at work? Will you keep us moving forward? Will you present us opportunity and by your spirit then provoke us to act? Please, Lord. We're watching and we're waiting. We're praying, Lord. Grant us the righteousness and the faithfulness we need to be a beacon and a light to our world. Pray, Lord, as we leave here this day that you'll grant us opportunities, that you'll grant us faithfulness, that you'll help us, Lord, to glorify your name in all the earth. For, Lord, it is our greatest desire to see you win. And, Lord, we'll not take it for granted that you do. We will join in the fight. We will walk. We will make the pilgrimage. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.